0: Well, Larry, thank you for praying and getting us started, and, uh, and today I want to talk about experiencing uh, the reality of our walk with Christ, and the text I want to use, which I'll read in a little bit, is Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, it's on your paper, but uh, I want to talk about that, that, that whole idea of really experiencing the gospel and experiencing the reality of our walk with Christ. And I want to start off with a story. Maybe you heard about the, the American businessman who went to Japan to speak. Now, this, this American businessman was not only an excellent man in business, not only was he a success in business, he was, a, have I told you this story? Okay, you're smiling like, oh, I've heard this. Oh, okay, all right, okay, good. So you can throw me off real easy uh, here. So That's okay, no, that's all right, that's all right. So, uh, so he was not only uh, a quality and accomplished businessman who had made it independently wealthy, he was a, happened to be a dynamic communicator as well, and so was on, uh, was on the circuit not only talking about his business, but they would pay phenomenal amounts of money to have him speak on the subject of business. So he was invited to Japan to speak, and he arrived there and was taken to the place where the conference was being held, and escorted up to the dais with the MC, and uh, introduced, and he gave his message. And uh, it, was, it was the message. It was the communicator's message. I mean, he had it all together. It was flowing. He felt really good about it. The, the, the points he made, the illustrations, the stories, the jokes, and there was absolutely no response from the audience. I mean, flat face, nothing, nothing. They, and and he's, he's thinking, this works in America. This is not working here. And so he gives the whole message, he sits down, uh, on the dais with the MC, and then another a Japanese man comes forward and starts speaking, animatedly so. Uh, he's gesturing and telling, t- talking, he didn't know what he's saying, but he's talking and the people are responding. I mean, they're in this. They're laughing, they're clapping, they're very much involved in the speech, and, and, and this guy was feeling a little bit bad about himself. You know, I just can't, I can't, obviously I don't have much to say compared to this guy. And, and um, so he gets caught up and he starts clapping. At what the guy's saying, just because everybody else is clapping, and the and the moderator, the MC, leans over and goes, "No, no, 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 no! You mustn't clap." He's interpreting your speech. <laughs> yeah. Now, what's the application? I have no idea. I just like that story. I thought I just did <laughs> well, at one level, there's an application for us, uh, but there's a reverse application that I want to get to because. Uh, The reverse application is is this, that sometimes we are very much, as as people who've been going to church for a lot of years, we're very much like that Japanese audience. Now, all they needed, all the audience needed was to have the message interpreted in their language to get it. And then they would have been uh, delightfully engaged. Once they got the interpretation, they were delightfully engaged, right? Right. But we, um, in a reverse application of this, we hear the gospel all the time. We go to church, we listen to it on the radio, and sometimes we can be like that Japanese audience. We, we can cease to be delighted by the gospel. We can cease to be taken with the richness and the profundity of the stories of Jesus the parables. We can, we can listen, we can hear it, we can say, good, that's nice, that's wonderful, It's good, and then go on. Hey, what are you doing later today? Um, and, and, and we run the risk of identifying our relationship with God as not a really an experience, but something that has become rather ho-hum. Now, some Christians define experiencing God intellectually, and we in the Presbyterian persuasion have a tendency to do that so that you're spiritual and you're experiencing God if you've got all of the doctrinal formulations in line. I'm a Presbyterian minister. I mean, I know the Westminster Confession of Faith. I had to be examined on it orally. I could, 33 chapters, okay? Do you have that all down? (laughs) I do. I'm more spiritual than you guys. That's all there is to it. But for so many years, I defined myself as really interacting with God if I knew the intellectual, theological formulations of the doctrines. That's why a lot of people today say, we're not so interested in the doctrines of the, don't give me the doctrines, just give me Jesus. Well, you can't just give you Jesus. you got to know the doctrines and the teaching of the faith too. Well, on the other side, on the flip side, some Christians identify really experiencing God if they're having an emotional experience an emotional reaction, right? They go, oh, that message moved me emotionally. I experienced God because their emotions were moved. Well, is that, are, are emotions always reliable? Can we talk? I mean, I've had indigestion, and I thought it was Jesus, and it wasn't. <laughs> so the reality is our emotions are not necessarily Now, if you're going to experience God at some level, has there got to be a cognitive, intellectual engagement with the truths of Scripture? Everybody say yes. Yes. If you're going to have a relationship with God and experience God, is there at some level an emotional involvement with God? Everybody say yes. Yeah, right. Okay, I'm not trying to trip you up, but it's more than that. There is a true experience spiritually of the living God. And that's what I want to talk to you about in this text today that Paul is going to be dealing with in Ephesians chapter 3. So that's the text. I've got it there for you. But the problem is, is I am a Presbyterian minister and I can't just preach the text without giving you a little bit of the context. Because it's right in the middle of the book. Ephesians three fourteen through 21 is right. It's the hinge of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And if I launch into it without giving you a little bit of the background, I'll be giving you... You've heard this before, right? A text without a context is a pretext to say whatever you want it to say. So I want to give you a little bit of a context for this prayer uh, that Paul prays. But first, let me read the text for you. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named... That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit, where? In your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up with all the, f- what? The fullness of And then he ends with a very familiar benediction, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Uh, Pat Morley of Man in the Mirror has often said that uh, the big ideas of Christianity take, take 20 years to sink in. And I think that's true. I want to go a step further and say the biggest idea of Christianity takes your whole life to sink in. And the biggest idea of Christianity is God's grace in Christ. And that takes your whole life to sink in deeper and deeper and deeper. And then it has the effect of the continual transformation in our life. And that's really what Paul is talking about, how grace leads us to experience God in a powerful way. Way, you, If you've uh, read Ephesians, you know by way of context that he starts out with this Trinitarian prayer in Ephesians 1 that really is not only Trinitarian but doctrinally so powerful that it raises all of the issues and big, big theological conundrums uh, in theology like predestination, like calling, like the foreknowledge of all these things. These big, It brings up the Trinity in Ephesians 1. And then he gets to Ephesians 2, and he says that, that by the time you came to faith in Christ, before that, you were dead spiritually. Spiritual death means that you and I have no, and this is important, because spiritual death means, he starts out Ephesians 2, 1, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Sin kills us. You ever heard of a mortal sin? All of us are born mortal sinners, except my beautiful granddaughter Maggie, who I told you about last <laughs> No, you know, I, I showed a couple pictures. Before you leave, I'd like to show you her picture. She's the vision of... Anyway, no, she's born a sinner, too. And we're seeing it. <laughs> we're seeing it. She's only eight weeks old. A vision of beauty. And there's a lot of times she's crying because, because the milk is causing gas. And then there's times when the wrong person is holding her and she just wants mama and she's mad. And so I look at my son Joel, who did virtually the same thing, and I said, son, the chickens have come home to roost, (laughs) you know, I mean, this is so sweet, I can't even tell you. So Paul says that when we're born, we're born sinners, we're not born morally neutral. This is absolutely crucial. It's absolutely theologically, biblically important that we understand that we're born sinners because that means then that we are born unable to move into a relationship with the living God by ourselves. And it takes God moving into our lives for us to experience Him. And that's what He says. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, Ephesians 2, "but but, but God being rich in mercy. Because of His great love with which He loved us even when we were dead. He made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. Who was the first one that moved toward you? Did you move toward God or did God move toward you? Biblically speaking, God moves toward us before we ever even think of moving toward Him. That's grace. And so He unfolds all of this work and the work of Christ in the first part of the book of Ephesians, talking about the substitutionary atonement of Christ. That Jesus died on the cross for my sins and your sins, and it covers us forever. And so when we get to our text for today, and by the way, Paul, having immersed himself in, in grace and the doctrine of the gospel, um, it falls on his knees and says, I, I'm, the, I'm the least of sinners. It, that was really a humbling thing to know what Christ has done for you. What Christ has done for me. But then he gets to the text. Here it is. Let's look at this together. This prayer, this hinge, because what he's going to do at the rest of Ephesians now is he's going to then start talking about the so what of the gospel of grace. Okay? But this prayer is the hinge before all that. He says, for this reason, because of all that Jesus has done for us, the big idea of the gospel of grace and what he's done on the cross for us and how he loved us even when we are spiritually dead, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. I don't know how many of you can bow, uh, how, many, how many of you bow on your knees when you pray? Raise your hand, show us how spiritual you are. A couple of you, good. I, I do too sometimes, but sometimes it hurts going down that, that far, on the, and, but, I, but frankly, I gotta be honest with you. I do not pray well on my knees because I lose focus. And, and, and now this is gonna free you guys up that don't like praying on your knees, the Jews didn't typically pray on their knees. The Jews typically prayed standing up. Remember when Jesus is with the publican, the IRS agent, and, uh, and the sinner? They're all standing, you know, the, the publicans on the corner, the IRS agent saying, I'm glad I'm not like other guys. Uh, and the other guy, and they're standing up. Typically the Jew stood up to pray. I'm so glad about that. Uh, Paul, Paul bow, bowed down this time. And the reason he bowed down to pray was that it was so intense. When you you are hurting emotionally, spiritually, when you are at the very end of yourself, which is the best place to be, what do you do? You go to your knees. Even I go to my knees. You go to your knees because you realize you are nothing compared to he who is greater. And you need help. This shows that this prayer is crucial to Paul. So I I don't want you to just hear this prayer. I want you to see this is a key prayer for him. It's it's become a key prayer for me. It could become a key prayer for you, too. I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. And here here is where this idea of God as creator is, in a sense, the Father over all, right? There is a sense in which we believe in the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man because God is the creator. But we are not all brothers deeply unless we are united, brothers and sisters united in Christ. But there is a sense in which all of us get our identity because God is the creator. But much more so, we are, are, are one because of, of Christ. He is the one that ties us together. You may not like me. The truth be known, if I really got to know you, I might not like you. But if, don't hit your husband. I mean... <laughs> No, no, I'm just kidding. But the fact of the matter is, if, you really, if we really got to know each other, we might not like each other. That's okay. That's irrelevant in the church, isn't it? Because we're family. Thanksgiving's coming and so is Christmas. You are going to be getting together with people that are family. And you know where I'm going with this. But You're related and you're going to get together. And it's once a year and there it is. But, but we are united in Christ Because we get our name from Him. And our core identity, I've said this before, this is my mantra, our core identity, your core identity, if you're a woman, is a daughter of the living God through Jesus. And men, your core identity is as a son. That'll never change. And that's so powerful. Now this is what he prays. That according to the riches of His glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being that little phrase according that prepositional phrase according to his glory is crucial that says a lot there notice it does not say out of his out of the riches of his glory what's the difference according to versus out of all right we didn't take an offering here Thank you. We could have. But if we take an offering and I put some money in, I'm taking it out of here and putting it in the plate. Now, when I take it out of here and I put it in the plate, what am I doing? Essentially, what am I doing? Reallocation. Reallocation. (laughs) I am diminishing what is in my wallet I'm diminishing it, taking out of, right, and putting it into the plate. Now, you all say, trust God, he'll take care of you, da-da-da-da. But notice, Paul doesn't say, out of the riches of God's glory. Because when God blesses his people, he never diminishes in his capacities for us. When he gives to you out of his grace, when he gives to you out of answering this prayer that, he's, that Paul's praying, God is never in any way diminished. He doesn't have, he doesn't have less. And so this is a powerful statement, just in a small preposition, out of the riches of his glory. According to the riches of his glory, not out of. According to the incredible riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. The word in the original language is dunamis. It's the dynamite. Uh, uh, With power through his spirit in the inner being. Um, We need power, don't we? How many of you woke up this morning and thought, I don't want to go to church. No, some no, because you're spiritual and you knew, you know, Larry Kreider was going to be here. uh, But there are days we wake up and you go, I don't know. I don't have what it takes. Or I don't feel I have what it takes. I want to have what it takes, but I don't feel I have what it takes. We need power. And we catch this Adam never woke before he sinned. You listening to this? This is crucial. He never woke up, even before he sinned, and said, I can do this on my own. Adam was not created to do life on his own. Even before he sinned. After he sinned, he woke up and he said, I need God. But even before. Do you know that spiritual warfare took place before the fall into sin? Before Adam sinned, before Eve sinned, did you know there was spiritual warfare? Before you say, that sounds heretical. Well, Satan was around though, wasn't he? Let me ask you this theological question that will save your life. How long did Adam and Eve live before they sinned? Who knows? I don't know. We don't know. Could have been centuries. We don't know. The longer they lived before they sinned reveals the case that they were under spiritual warfare. A pressure, even before they sin. We need power. Now this is what he prays. I love this prayer. He prays that three things, that we'd be strengthened out of the riches, according to the riches of God's glory, in our spirits, in the inner man, the inner person, for three things that take place. So that Jesus becomes real to us, that love becomes core to us, and that God becomes the one who fills us. First of all, that Jesus would be real to us. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner being, verse 17, so that Christ may... What's the word in the, in the Bible there? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Let me ask you this. When you came to faith in Christ, didn't Christ come to live in your your heart? So then, wasn't that true for the Ephesians too? So then why is he praying that Christ would dwell in their hearts? Christ already is dwelling in their hearts, right? Interesting that in a sense, of course that's true. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says that when we accept Christ, we are baptized by the Spirit into Christ. We are placed in Christ, into a union with Christ that can never change. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit. You are kept. And yet Paul is praying that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. And what he means is this, that not only would we know that he is there, that we have some emotional experiences that he is there from time to time, but that we have an ongoing Real spiritual experience of him in our life. In other words, he wants us to really understand that Jesus is there. He wants Jesus to become more and more real to us. He dwells there permanently. He's not going to leave you. God does not want you and I to walk with him with this insecurity of faith. Oh, I messed up. What if I didn't show up today? Now, Larry's going to have to pull it off. He could be a little angry. For his anger, if I didn't show up, would uh, God forgive Larry? Yeah. Based on what? He said, no, he's not going (laughs) to forgive him. Based on what would God forgive Larry if he got angry at me? On the work of Christ. Right? And you'd double schedule. So when I was supposed to come on the the lunch, you'd have somebody else there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see, I see. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? But the reality is he's not angry at us. In Christ, we've been forgiven and he loves us, but he wants us to experience the reality, the very living reality of Jesus. And he wants Jesus to be real to us every day and to the Ephesians. And, 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 And he wants that sense to be prevalent and powerful, a permanent dwelling. Jesus said in John 15, abide in me and I in you, Abide. Let's have this living relationship. Come, stay at my house. Let me come to your house. Let's, let's act as if we're living together. And that the Christian life is not just a Sunday thing, right? It's a day-to-day thing. It's an ongoing thing. It's an everyday thing. And he wants that. That's what Paul prays. Uh, that when we become, when Christ comes to dwell in us and feel His presence. Now what happens when, when, when we feel the living presence of Jesus? Things begin to happen. Trials take on a whole new texture, don't they? If Christ is real to you in your heart, trials take on a whole, a whole new. Te- Larry, what time are we supposed to be done here today? Okay, good. This will be. I'll be done at eleven. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, when 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 Jesus is real to you, trials and temptations take on a whole new texture in our life. Fenelon, a, a 17th century uh, French bishop who really was born again, said this. He said, "Every temptation." that comes your way, proves what you really are. Do you agree with that? I've come to see that when I am tempted, because temptations come from three sources, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. But a lot of times, how I deal with my temptations, I see who I am. My temptations are a reverse picture of myself, of my soul, of who I really am. Um, And when we are tempted, we see the real us. James 1 talks about how how, um, trials ought to push us to Jesus so that we would grow. Temptations show us our sin. Trials push us to grow. And when Jesus is real inside you, and me we have a different approach to our temptations instead of feeding them we say jesus whoa i can't believe i thought that i can't believe i was drawn to that and there's a dialogue that takes place right because jesus is real to us but if jesus is not real to you you'll say hmm that's a temptation i feel awful about that what am i going to do about that temptation Or you might start saying, "Hmm, I kind of like that temptation. You might feed it. You might go with it. But if Jesus is real to you on the inside, then you know that what you're experiencing on the inside is what Jesus knows you're experiencing on the inside, and it changes the texture of your relationship. It's cool. I can't hide anything. I don't want to hide anything. I don't need to play a game. Jesus, you know what I just experienced. Whoa! And I've told you, that when I confessed a sin to Steve Brown one time, he's, I said, I, I can't believe I did that. And He said, you wouldn't be so surprised at your own sin if you didn't have such a high opinion of yourself. <laughs> so, well, so what's your point? You know, so, so my point is, I don't have to be surprised at my own sin. <laughs> Jesus is not, and he loves me anyway. So, so, so this is so powerful. Um, He's right there, and Paul prays that Jesus would become more real to us. Secondly, he prays that love would become core to us. Verse seventeen: that you look at the look at the what he says here. Underline these words: rooted and grounded, rooted and grounded in love. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the now you understand dimensions. Uh, Help me out on this: the breadth and length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ, that what? Surpasses knowledge. So what he prays is something that is is sort of impossible in this life, and that is to have infinite knowledge of the love of God for us. Will we ever understand? No, he says it it surpasses knowledge in the here and the now. But this is what he prays for. He prays for something that is so much bigger than our request. I usually pray for God, help me to feel better tomorrow. God help me to have enough money to pay the bills. My wife had foot surgery, too. Um, you had knee surgery. By the way, you had a striker knee. My son is a, works with that company. The, so I, you know, I don't know. I probably ought to give a kickback to you for getting that knee done. But ask her she had a striker. Did you, have a, did you have striker navigation? She goes, "I don't know. I, that's the division he's with how easy it is for me to interrupt myself. Um, <laughs> but what, what he's praying about is that, is that there is something, we tend to pray about those things that are rather simple, but they're important to us, right? This is complex, and it's important to God. God. That we would know know in the core of our being, you as a daughter and me as a son, as sons and daughters, that we would have it in our core, rooted and grounded. Notice the terminology here. He uses the architectural terminology. So if you're in construction, you understand foundations. Um, He's talking about being grounded but also rooted. Ever try to move a palm tree? We had one that was encroaching on on our pool deck in our backyard. And I said, ah, it's no big deal. I'll take that thing out. I've taken trees out before. I have, have you ever tried to take a palm tree out with its roots? I needed a bobcat. Um, I couldn't even do that. I gave up. I said, honey, this is as far as it's going. If it's going to get out a pro, is going to come in and take this sucker out. Because when it's rooted and when it's grounded, it has the stability to last. We have hurricanes here in Florida. We know what strong winds are like. When I was a youth pastor in California, we had the Santa Ana winds. Remember the Santa Annas out there? Blew a door, my door, right off. I came out as a youth pastor, came out the door, blew the door right off the hinges. What is going to keep you and and me? How are we going to have any stability? Only when we are rooted and grounded by the love of God. Now, it's a whole other subject. We can't talk about it today. but, But how you define God's love is crucial about you. And if you think that God cannot love you emotionally but can only love you intellectually, this is not going to speak to you. If you were raised in a home where a father was gone most of the time or distant or where the love of a man in your life, whether you're a man or a woman, if you don't understand the emotional love of a man for you, it's going to be difficult for you to understand the love of God for you, because God's love is emotional as well as intellectual. And we tend to put on the face of God our earthly father experience, and he wants us to understand the love of God for us that is both intellectual. I love you knowing full well everything about you. I love you based on what my son has done for you. And I love you with a heartfelt love that is perfect. That's what he wants to define us. As the Father has loved me, Jesus said, so what? I have loved you. And so Paul prays that this this would be a a, a reality in our life, that Jesus would be real to us, that love would become core to us, that that would be the foundational subsistence of our life. And then lastly, he prays that God would become the one who fills us. Verse 19, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be, let's say this together, that you may be filled together with all of the fullness of God or the power of God. God is our ultimate resource, and he wants us to be filled up with what? With himself. But we fill up with all kinds of other things. I used up a significant amount of gas on the way over here in my truck today because I called Cody. I was a little bit late because I took the 417 to the airport before I realized, what am I doing? I'm I'm supposed to take the 408 to get here. And um, so I... So I turned around, got off. I broke the law on the way over here, putting the pedal to the metal, and I used up gallons of gas, right? So I have to get filled up on the way home. My truck gets empty, but so does my heart. Yours too? Every day. I think God calls us to eat three meals a day, unless you're in phenomenal shape. Maybe it's the five small meals. I won't debate that with you. But I think God calls us to to eat three times a day because he knows that we need to stop several times during the day and remember not only to fill up physically, but to fill up spiritually. So before you eat, do you pray? Usually. Um, The Jews prayed three times a day. The Muslims pray five times a day. Why? Because they need to stop and remember who fills them up? And I need to remember that because I will tend to go toward other things to fill up. I will, I will tend to fill up on the approval of others or the accomplishments that I think I've, I've made. I will, I will tend to fill up on how I think I can control life I, I, I fill up on how my kids think of me, how my wife thinks of me, how my granddaughter thinks of me. She smiled at me for the first time yesterday, and I, I, I'm not sure it was real. Um, she's not quite there yet. But when she really gets to know me, I will pay her any amount of money that it takes. I want her approval. Yeah. I'll spoil her rotten. You see, but the reality is, is that what we need is we need to fill up on the one who can fill us up and keep us keep us full for a time. But we leak, don't we? We leak the love of God. Other people's influence in our life hurts us. By the end of the day, we leak. We need to constantly fill up with the approval of God, and that's why Paul prays this prayer. This is a very this is a very sophisticated theological prayer, isn't it? When you realize that it's based on all of the work of Christ for this reason, based on all that Jesus has done for us on the cross. And after this, he's going to get into the dues of the gospel. The rest of the letter to the Ephesians is, okay, now husbands, wives, do this, do that, do this. But all of it is based on Jesus, and all of it is based on what he's done for us, and the power of God in us. The dues at the rest of the letter are not based on getting approval. It's because we're already accepted. But here he wants us to get down the core. He wants our our central core of our being to be filled with this. And this is complexity that leads us to a simple life. I was talking with Steve Brown about this the other day. Uh, The Oliver Wendell Holmes quote, he said, said, I wouldn't give a fig, now follow me on this one, because I had to ask Steve what he thought about this. Uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes said, I wouldn't give a fig for simplicity, this side of complexity. But he said, i will give my whole life for simplicity on the other side of complexity. What's that mean? I know, I didn't have a clue either. <laughs> what it means is this, a lot of people have silly ideas of life. Silly, superficial ideas of life. Simplistic little, you see those t-shirts, life is good? I like those T-shirts. I have one. Good friend gave me one. I like it. Life is good. Is life always good? Could we talk? If you adopt that principle, life is good, that will not sustain you. It's, not, it's too simple. Now, after you understand the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you're on the other side and you've done all of the hard work of understanding suffering and sin and alienation and what Jesus has done for you and me on the cross after you've done that hard work of thinking that through then can you say life is good a christian can say that because a christian can say on the other side of that complexity you know Jesus Jesus loves me karl barth the great theologian after writing 10 or 12 volumes of dogmatic theology Somebody said to him, Dr. Bart, I don't agree with hardly anything he wrote, but but so, Dr. Bart, what have you learned in all of that study? And he said, This is what I've learned in German. He said, This is what I've learned. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. See, when you pray this prayer, this will, this will lead to God filling you up from the inside. And it will lead you to a simplicity on the other side of complexity. And we can live off of that. Is this possible to live a prayer like this? It is. Because he ends with the benediction. And what's the benediction? Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in Christ Jesus forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. "Amen." That's the benediction. I gave it a million times. And the benediction cannot be separated from that prayer. For this reason, because of the gospel, Paul says, I pray that you would be, according to the riches of his glory, strengthened by his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that Jesus be real to you, that you'd be rooted and grounded in love, that love, God's love for you would be core to you, and that you would be filled up to all the fullness of God. That is, it's a prayer you could pray for yourself. It's a prayer you could pray for others. It's a prayer we could pray together. It's a prayer that He will answer. You take it to heart. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this message, be sure to sign up for our free weekly email, Key Life Connection. Just visit keylife.org slash subscribe. Thanks.